I don't write because I have something to say. I write because I don't know what I have to say. I want to figure it out. And it changes all the time. If I keep getting older, the way I feel about things will indeed change. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Jericho Brown is the author of three collections of poetry, The Tradition, Please, and The New Testament. He is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the Whiting Award and the head of the creative writing program at Emory. He's also one of those poets whose work has been a guide in my own life. I've been reading his poetry for years, and he has... He has that gift for holding a whole world of experience in just a few lines and a few images. I have admired him for a long time, and so it was a thrill to get to talk to him about church, about love, about longing and desire, about oration, and about learning how to change and learning what doesn't change. Hope you enjoy. When I realized I was writing. I mean, I was sort of always writing, but then I realized it was happening. And I, I realized I had to become conscious about it because I would, <laughs> but you know, people, um, people wouldn't have you on lovely shows like this one if you didn't have things to say about it. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I think the more conscious I became about it, the more I realized how much the church had informed it. Um, that I think of the order of service the same way I think of poems, whether they're formal or not that you have an idea of the container, you know um, you know what's coming, you just don't know how it's gonna come. Um, I know when I write, it's going to be in lines, and I know that they're going to be lines that I think of as taught, um, and that those lines are going to do certain kinds of things, that there are certain moments that I have an expectation of in a poem, you know, like a climax or a pinnacle, or, um, and I'm always trying to change the movement uh, the moment where those moments where those moments could be, uh, so I think um, one of the things that became the metaphor for me was church because uh, similar to when I was a kid, there was always something you did not expect. Um, even the sermon itself would be a sermon you didn't expect, but you didn't know. You knew people were going to shout. You didn't know when. You didn't know if everybody was going to shout or if it was just going to be a few people. You didn't. You didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and ultimately, in poetry and in all art, I'm I'm interested in surprise. Uh, so, how is it that you can create a pattern, a form, and also have surprise? And I think the church helped to lead me to that. Um, church was also because it was the black church, very um, performative. Uh, there was a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance. Um, it was like going to a pageant every Sunday, you know, with how people would dress and the hats and. I think uh, something about that also has to do with the way my poems sound, the way they appear. Um, I've always wanted to write poems that are meant to be read aloud. Um, obviously, you can read my poems without moving your lips, and you can get something from them, I hope. But I want the poems to lead you to move your lips. I want you to feel like opening your mouth. Um, 
which was also an inspiration from the church itself, right? The feeling, feeling like you need to open your mouth. Um, so I think uh, those are some of the things that I got from there. My, my, the pastor of uh, the Mount Canaan Missionary Baptist Church, where I grew up, uh, died quite recently last year of um, COVID. So um, I think, and I, I think, um, I just wanted to say that I think his, his example, uh, the way he was an orator, the way he was a pastor, the way he would clearly think through and write and give his sermons has been the best example um, that I could ever have of how to make poems happen in the world and, and how to deliver them to the world, um, how to stand by them, how to believe in them. So I think there's a lot that I, that I do get from the church in that manner. Uh, his name was the Reverend Harry Blake, and he, um, he was really well known throughout the city because he had been a civil rights leader in Shreveport in the 1960s and 70s, um, really close with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, an organizer who uh, was often beaten and berated by police during the time. As a matter of fact, there was one particular very... Um, famous time that the police uh, often uh, marches and protests, you know, they would have their meetings or their ending point or their beginning point at churches and um, at the time. And uh, the police figured out that there were protesters in our church and they marched horses um, through the church and they started beating everyone in the church and they beat uh, my pastor uh, within an inch of his life, a literal inch. They um, he almost died uh, and they couldn't. And part of the reason he almost died is they couldn't take him to a hospital in Shreveport. They had to drive out of town because they knew that any doctor in Shreveport that, that would see him, that maybe a doctor in Shreveport wouldn't see him because of who he was or that any other doctor in Shreveport might have tried to hurt him further. Um, so uh, I think that is, that example I think is part of the reason why um, I live blissfully naive, right? Like I have this idea, I have this belief in things because they were close to me. Um, a lot of times when we hear things as, a, as kids, um, we don't really believe them. And I think I had the problem of believing them because I had so many examples of them close to me, like Harry Blake. Um, uh, he was also, um, he just had a way of moving into song. He just sounded a very uh, deep-voiced man, but he sounded like he was singing even when he was talking, you know? Um, I'm fascinated by that, and I'm still interested in that. I want my poems to sound like that, obviously, right? Um, when I think of lyric, I, I also think of lyrical, uh, so that's part of, what I, part of what I want from my poems. Um, it's interesting thinking about the word threshold, I think, uh, and it's interesting you would bring up the church. I think part of the reason why it's hard for me to think about thresholds is because I don't, I really don't actually trust that anything, I mean, I automatically think about the word in a moralistic manner. I don't necessarily trust that anything I used to do, I won't do again. You know, I used to be the kind of person that would get into fights, you know, uh, even with poets, you know, <laughs> like I, when I say <laughs> fights, I mean like fights, like I wanted to like ball up my fists and hit people, you know. Um, and I used to be that person and I'm much less that person now, but because I was that person, I know, I don't think he's gone. I just think <laughs> I am calmly, um, 
I am consistently calming him down, you know, so I, um, so I don't get into as many fights and I try to stay away from situations that could get me into fights. But um, and so whenever I think about a threshold, I think about walking through a door that you're not going to go back to. And I don't know if I think that's true for myself. You know, um, I'm always trying to integrate every part of myself because uh, if I don't, then I get in a I get in a kind of danger zone. So there are many parts of my life I would love to be rid of, but I've learned to love them uh, and accept them um, no matter what they were. So it's hard for me to think about, it's harder, I guess. I guess that's why it's harder for me to think about thresholds because I, I keep thinking about it as, oh, the past. And I, I guess mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have a fundamental belief in the past. I mean, I also think something about that has to do with the way in which I'm black. Like, I think the past is always with us and is indeed quite present. You know, I think our grandmothers walk with us, whether they're dead or alive. You know, I think our ancestors are indeed here. So it's it's very difficult um, for me to think in terms. I think that's why I was stumped um, when when you mentioned (laughs) thresholds, because I have this idea of threshold in the same way that, you know, if that word was brought up in the church, uh, you would be thinking about moving away from some former behavior, right? Uh, and in, and moving into a new behavior. And uh, there are some new behaviors that I've moved into, but I don't know that I won't ever go back to the former behaviors. I sort of just walk around with my fingers crossed, but really walk around with faith or in faith. In common idiom, and I could be wrong about this, but as soon as I think about the word threshold, I think about carrying the bride over the threshold. I'm trying to think of other places where we have it in common idiom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And but when I think of it, that's the first one that comes to me. And so I think, you know, there is this idea of the word and newness, uh, the word and change, the word and this is your house now. Do you, do, that, that that old house you had is not your house anymore. Um, so that's sort of a, that's, that is what I think of. But, but in truth, yeah, you could get carried over the threshold and you could want to get you out of that right house. You out. could want to divorce the same man that carried <laughs> you over the threshold soon thereafter. Right. So, so, um, so yeah, I, um, I think that's why I think of the word that way. Um, there are some things that I have though, that if I look back, I think I don't have to worry about, you know, there was a time for instance, I mean, you know, this is all learning and schooling. Um, there was a time for instance, that I didn't think I understood how to make use of metaphor in a poem. Um, and so I practiced until I figured it out because it seemed to me quite important that I know how to make use of metaphor in a poem. Um, I wasn't good at, at metaphor. I was good at direct statement. Um, I wasn't good at image, but I was good at rhetoric. Um, I was good at certain things, 
in poems. And then there were other craft-based elements that I got better at. And I think that might be the threshold that I really crossed, sort of understanding at that moment just how big um, poetry was. Uh, when I when I finished my MFA program, part of the reason why I went to a PhD program is because when I went into the MFA, I thought, oh, I can write. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, how hard can it be? And by the time I finished, I realized, you know, I thought I was just going to like take a swim in a pool and the pool turned out to be an ocean. And I really wanted to swim in the ocean. I wanted to see if I could brave the ocean, you know, and uh, that was part of what that degree was about. And I think that was the big change for me, uh, realizing that there was always going to be something that I still had to learn. Uh, And if there's anything that I learned from going to school, maybe I didn't, maybe, I mean, I learned a lot. But one of the things that I learned was that I would always be learning something new about how to make poems and about how to read them, um, how to enjoy them, um, and how to let them have their value in my life, how to stand behind them, how to believe in them. Um, There are a lot of poets, I think, who are ashamed of poetry. Um, You know, we say we are poets and we don't want to say it to everybody. Uh, But I try to stand behind that and I try to say it to everybody. And I think that's because of that ocean that I learned to brave. Uh, and I don't really, um, I think the other thing is I don't really mind making a fool out of myself. Like I don't mind not knowing things or admitting that I don't know things. And, uh, you know, if people want to be upset with me about not knowing things, then that's their business. I wanted to ask you about, uh, the, that experience of realizing that you thought you were swimming in like a swimming pool and you were in fact swimming in an ocean. Um, was there something... Like, when was that? Was there something you were reading at the time that kind of provoked that? Or were you working on something in your own poetry? I wouldn't say that it was as exact as that. Um, I started this habit, though, of reading the poets that I loved, the poets I really liked, or even just the poets that I kept hearing about. I would read them from beginning to end. So, for instance, um, a really large figure um, when I was in school was Phil Levine. And so I would purpose it, and I'm just using him as an example. Um, A better example would actually be Adrian Rich. I would purpose it in my heart. I would say, okay, everybody's talking about Adrian Rich. I've read three Adrian Rich poems. I like them. And so then I would decide I was going to read every poem Adrian Rich had ever written. Um, And then later I would decide I was going to read every essay because I needed to know everything that Adrian Rich could ever do. Um, And I think that process of reading Rich and other writers who uh, had been doing this long before me. Uh, And when I say long, what I mean is I would make that decision about Hopkins. I would make that decision about Milton. I would make that decision about Shakespeare. I had this idea that I needed to know everything that these figures had made. Um, It made me very excited to come across people like Yusef Komanyaka and Gwendolyn Brooks and Rita Dove because they were people, they were people who had many books by that time. And so they gave me something to look at and I could look at it blackly. You know, um, I was so happy to come upon uh, Black writers and Black queer writers in particular. Um, I'm glad that Carl Phillips writes as much as he does. Uh, I'm thankful that Reginald Shepard was here with us because they gave me something to do in that process. I think um, doing that kind of reading where I was trying to read all of anybody that I could um, really helped me understand that I would be doing that forever that there would be a time where I needed, I would always be catching up. Um, I have to say that the other thing that I learned during that time is that I like poetry the same way I like music. 
And that is in a nostalgic way, like I like it in the past tense, you know. Um, I'm much more excited about 90s R&B now than I was when I was living in the 90s listening to R&B. Um, because with it <laughs> comes memory. Um, if it's present tense, then you, you have the song, which might be a great song. But it's, if it's past tense, you have the song and you have everything that was going on at the time that that song came out um, nationally in your city and in your personal life. Um, and that's, I think, how poems get made, right? And so I feel the same way about poetry. Um, there are many poems from the past that I'll read and they have a larger impact on me now than they did when I first read them um, because there's there's a past that comes with them. So I think um, I think if there was any threshold, there was the threshold of me understanding that reading would be a centerpiece of my life, that I would have to do it every day. I think the trouble with that threshold is that you can't film it, right? Uh, poets' lives don't look good in the movies. I mean, even talking about <laughs> it sounds like, wait, your threshold is that you read Jericho? Do you know what I mean? But I mean, this is a poet's life and that's that's actually what it's all about. Right. Um, it's about reading and writing. Um, it's also about living. I mean, you have to you have to fall in love if you want to write a love poem. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a good idea to mm -hmm. have experiences um, or not fall in love, but be aware of the fact that you haven't. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a good idea to have experiences uh, if you want to if you want to write. I like that you brought up the the connection between memory or nostalgia and poetry and also reading that part of what feels meaningful is not just reading but rereading or the sense that you're reading something that isn't isn't arriving to you or to the world for the first time and how that can also bring you back to it it like um rhymes to me with the thing you were saying earlier about how um the past is always happening too, that when those resonances are all kind of like sounding at the same time, that that's when, that's when music feels good. And that's when poetry feels good to you. Yeah. Um, one of the, I, like one of those, frankly, this is probably, I don't know, maybe we'll want to we'll cut this, but one of those poems for me is an old poem of yours um, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, another elegy, the one that, that begins to believe in God is to love what none can see. Um, let and, a lover go. Yeah, let a lover mm. go. Oh my gosh. Mm. And um, that, I think that poem came to me when I was like 25 years old or something. And it just. And now you're 26. <laughs> <laughs> and it just like burrowed its way uh, into my heart and felt like such a, um, I don't know, like such a guide. And in particular, I think the thing that I loved about it so much is something that is true of your work in general or that I see as a, a pattern in your work, um, which is the way that you um, connect or, I don't know, make the same um, worship and love and loneliness and longing and um, the, the way that to be left by God can be, can feel like being left by a lover and that longing after mm -hmm. this sort of conflation of desire, many kinds of desire, spiritual desire and romantic desire and the conflation of, um, you know, the, the, the missing man, whoever he is, whether he's a lover or whether he's God. Um, 
And I, I want, I swear I'm winding to a question. The question I wanted to ask you is, um, how do you see those, can those themes, those connections between God and the lover, between, uh, longing of religious longing and love longing, um, how are those themes growing with you mm. as you sort of keep growing into the poet that you are now, you know, a few books, a few collections later than than that that first poem that I referenced? Mm. That's a good question. Um, that's a great question. And maybe I don't know. I do know the answer, but I don't know how to articulate the answer, which is crazy because I'm a poet. I should be better than that, right? I, um... I'll try. I'll try to say this. Um, uh, it's hard to say it. It's hard to say it without sounding like a new agey freak, but I am a new agey freak. So I, um, I think what I didn't understand when I first started writing that I have a better, I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever fully get it as much as I should. It, I mean, if I, if I did completely get it, I would be God. But there is indeed a kind of oneness of life. Um, there's a place that desire comes for, from, and there's a source from which we all spring. And um, we don't know why we have the desires we have, and we don't know why we have the talents we have. Um, we don't know, you know, two shy people ha will have um, a gregarious <laughs> and, and performing child. Do you know what I mean? I um, mean, we don't know why that is. Um, and I think all of that has to do, I think the loving, the longing for a lover and the lo longing for God are not at all different. Um, but I also think the longing for anything that you longing for, you long for and the long, longing for God is not different. I think those things are united. I think they're all a part of, of a one. Um, and we don't know why we have that longing. We don't know why we want the things we want. Um, we also don't know why it feels so good and so crazy uh, to be in love. Uh, but we can imagine, right, that um, that something like that, something like being in a relationship like that is similar to our relationship uh, to God. Um, that we have, that there's something we know and yet we can't put our finger on exactly what that is. There's something bigger and higher than us. And yet we, we can't, um, it is so ineffable. We cannot, we can't touch it. And so then we choose to say it's not there, right? Um, which is ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous to say it's not there because uh, somebody listening to this um, used to live on the East Coast. And one day they met somebody who lived on the West Coast and they moved to the West Coast to be with that person. And that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Do you know what I mean? Like you were living your life just fine and you moved to a whole nother coast. I mean, ultimately to another world, if you think about the differences, do you know what I'm saying? It's culturally really different. Um, and so I, I think something about that mystery, the thing that makes us want to do that is similar to the mystery of a higher power or of God. Uh, but I also think that God is more common than we give God, um, than we than we think um, that God is in that love, that God is in our food, that God is in um, our interactions with each other. Um, so I didn't know that. I didn't think that. Um, 
when I was first writing. Uh, when I was writing, please, I definitely thought of God as someone, as some being outside of the self, right? Um, and I don't have that feeling about God now. And therefore, um, I don't have the idea that when I fall in love, I'm getting something I don't deserve or I'm cheating God or <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Um, or that when I make love, I'm somehow um, sinning. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I actually believe all of that comes from God. So. like so much of your work is about exploring the that transcendence that that sort of culmination of understanding oneness or of joy or the the consummation of love of whatever kind of love um gets all mixed up with violence um and i'm wondering if you i'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about how you thought about bringing those two things into conversation in the tradition? Love and violence. Um, mm -hmm. Or I've transcendence always, and violence. Yeah. Um, um, I think I think part of the reason violence appears in my books is, as I mentioned before in this interview, um, I am violent. You know, there's a thing in me that wants to fight physically. Um, I am vengeful. Like there's a thing in me that wants to get back at anyone who's ever hurt me or anyone who's ever hurt someone I love. Um, but there's also a part of me that can monitor <laughs> the violence in me, that can monitor the vengeance in me, um, which is why a lot of people, I mean, in Jordan, it's no shade. I mean, a lot of people still got their job because I'm monitoring the vengeance in me. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, seriously, you know, I mean, the stuff that I know about poets Ooh, um, I could get a lot of people in trouble. You know what I mean? Um, there's a poet, for instance, you know, who lied on me, lied on me, Jordan, like just made up a whole story about me, you know? And I, um, at a time when that kind of story couldn't be made up, I was, um, and I didn't do anything. I still haven't like done anything to hurt him. Although, you know, I could, I got it in my pocket. Sometimes I sort of like, it's sort of like a um, a stuffed animal. You go and you pet every once in a while, like, oh, I could do this. I could, <laughs> but then I don't do it. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so I think, uh, I think that relationship has always been there because that's what I'm always balancing in my own life. I'm always trying to um, mitigate the violence with tenderness. Um, I'm always trying to look at the violence for what it really is and the violence is there because of fear. Um, all violence ri rises out of fear. And if I can be honest about the fact that I'm fearful, then I can also be honest about the fact of why that fear comes up at all. And fear comes up because of love, you know, because of our need for safety, because of uh, wanting to stay with who we want to stay with that we love or wanting to be in love. And, and because we have these desires, they also come with fears. And if, if I can like take the second to do the math, um, do the, the, the logical, 
work that leads me there, then that's the reason why I don't uh, lash out at folk and act crazy with people. Um, and in my own poems, I'm not just thinking about that for myself, but I'm thinking about that for the world. I'm thinking about where love and violence intersect. Um, and I, I, I keep doing that because I keep trying to talk to the guy in me that wants to blow stuff up. Do you know what I'm saying? So, uh, which is normal, by the way, you know, uh, Baldwin said this, you know, that to be conscious is also to be rageful. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So I don't, um, but I needed Baldwin to know that, you know, I was sort of ashamed of myself when I would lose my mind. Um, and I'm not, I'm just not as ashamed anymore um, about the past um, because I understand that I was being a whole and complete person, you know? So, yeah, it's very, um, it's very difficult even just to talk about these things in poetry um, because knowing these things won't help you write a poem. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, they will help you know things that you can make use of in a poem, but ultimately um, knowing more. I mean, we know that we have read poems that we liked and then we found out that the person who wrote the poem was a complete utter awful human being. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sure, Who is not trying to do the kind of work that I'm talking about doing. Um, but what I want to believe is that the kind of things that I'm doing in my poems, I'm letting those things speak to my life. So, you know, people think I'm like out here trying to be a political poet. It's not that I'm trying to be a political poet. It's not that I'm going after the police or going after my dad or going after anybody. It's that my poems arrive at these moments and because they arrive at these moments, I realize I have to live like the poems. And I think maybe there are a lot of people who arrive at moments, but then they don't try to live like the work. And I want to live like the work I'm making. Oh, I want to ask you more about that. Like, can you, because I'm not sure I totally understand what you're saying when you say you arrive at a moment in the poem and then you, you know you want to live like the poem. What is that? Is there a poem that comes to mind where you can help me understand what that meant? Um, I wish I had a, I should have had a book next to me. Hold on one second. Let me get a book. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if I can, I pulled up another elegy. I wonder if I can show you with this. You wipe your up, but love won't bow. Uh, this is probably, I could probably use another elegy. Um, to believe in God is to love what none can see. Let a lover go. Let him walk out with the good spoons or die without a signature. And so much remains for scrubbing, for a polish cleaner than devotion. Tonight, God is one spot. And you, you must be one blind nun. You wipe, you rub, but love won't move. So literally, and I mean this, Jordan, when I am writing poems, I am trying to figure out what I think. I don't sit down trying to write what I think. As a matter of fact, I sit down thinking, oh, I don't know what I really think. This is a parade and a charade. I'm, I'm pretending. And so this is my opportunity to see what I really think, right? Mm -hmm. And so through the process of writing, I come upon things like, tonight God is one spot and you must be one blind nun. You wipe, <laughs> you rub, but love won't move. And for me, that, is the, that, that realization is made real in my life. So there was a time when I thought I could live without the good stuff, love. You know what I mean? Um, 
And I'm still like this, you know, like I still want to run. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely a runner. Um, you know, I get one inkling of some trouble and I'm like, bye, I'll talk to y'all later. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Part of the reason I'm a runner is because of the violence. Like, I'm afraid that, like, if I get taken advantage of or somebody acts crazy with me, I'm going to end up killing them. Do you understand what I mean? So I'm like, I'd rather just be like, out. I'll, I'll talk to y'all later. Peace. You know what I'm saying? Um, but then, you know, after you write the poem, you write, you rub, but love won't move. You have to be conscious of that and realizing your life. You still have this desire longing. You have this desire and this longing, this this thing in you that wants to be united to another person. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that thing in you that wants to be united to another person, you should bless. You can't run from that. You can't say something's wrong with it. You can't say, oh, Jericho, you so stupid. You always running behind these men. Do you know, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like you have to be honest, right? Um, it also means that when people try to um, make fun of you or berate you, uh, because of your um, your experiences with love, you can't give them any credence. You can't pay them any attention because now you know better because you know what you really think. You know what you really believe. And you have to live by what you really think and what you really believe. And that And that's how I know I'm working with something. When I'm writing a poem, um, and this is, I mean, you know, this is definitely a threshold, right? When I'm writing a poem and I say what surprises me, that's when I know I'm writing a poem. You know, when I'm writing a poem and I'm like, oh, these are nice lines. This sounds good. This is exciting. So what? I'm not moved by what sounds good and is exciting. Not from my own pen, maybe from somebody else's. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But like, if it's my poem, I have to say what I didn't know I already knew. Um, that's Rich, by the way. That's Adrian Rich. Um, but when I get to what I didn't know I already knew, that's when I'm like, oh, but do you act like that, Jericho? Do you live like that? And then I have to change how I live and how I, I act. Do you ever, um, this is not like a literary question. I'm just curious. Do you ever hit a realization in writing a poem and then think, oh God, but I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to bother with that. Every time, every time. <laughs> Every time, I mean, this is part of the reason why image is so important in poetry, right? Um, it's easy to talk, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's another thing to make things real through image. You know, this poem, and I can see myself doing it, even in just the poem that we're talking about, to believe in God is to love what none can see. Let a lover go. Let him walk out with the good. And I notice at that moment in the poem, I've written for three lines and I haven't said a thing. I haven't put an image in this poem. And so there goes spoons. There's a signature. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so when you pick images, you pick them because your subconscious mind is carrying feeling and emotion and thought and meaning and symbols behind that particular image. Do you understand that image for you has a history? And that's the part in the poem where you realize, wait a minute, why did I choose that image? What does it have to do with anything? Right? Why is that important to me? Because nobody else would have chosen that particular image. Only you can. Does that do, do you follow what I'm saying, Jordan? Sure, of course. So that, and that's kind of that's what I um that's what I I mean, that's what I want. I want to face things that I'd rather not face in a poem. So every time I write one, um, you know, and it's different. The level of it is different. 
you know, um, obviously uh, writing another elegy, the realization is quite different from the realization uh, that I make when I'm writing the realizations, I should say, that I make when I'm writing a poem like The Tradition. Um, Mm. I realize in writing that poem just how concerned I am with the natural world. And I also realize that people are a part of the natural world. And so we, it's, it's just like we don't want to get rid of all our trees. It's a good idea for us not to get rid of all our Black people. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good idea for me not to be at risk. Um, so those are, the, those are the kinds of things that I think I figure out while I'm writing the poem. If people had a better understanding of that, um, they would be further along their journey or they would go do what they really want to do. Like a lot of people think they want to be a poet, but they really just want to say something because they have something to say. And it's great to have something to say, but I don't think that is, um, that's really where you ought to be if you're a poet. Do you understand what I mean? I don't write because I have something to say. I write because I don't know what I have to say. I want to figure it out. And it changes all the time. If I keep getting older, the way I feel about things will indeed change. Was it always going to be writing for you that was your way to this? I think so. Um, I think I was always, when I would watch, um, when I was a kid and I would watch movies or TV shows and something was really funny, I knew somebody had written it and I wanted to be that person. Or when I, um, do you know what I mean? Like I was, I, I love actors, but I wanted to be the person that gave the actor the thing to say, you know? Uh, and I fell in love with books when I was like, I fell in love with, of all people, I fell in love with John Updike, who taught me everything that I know about sex. I still use everything he's ever taught me about sex. That's how I make love. Do you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Um, you know, my ne- my dad never had that talk with me, but, um, but John Updike did, you know, The Witches of Eastwick and um, the Rabbit series. And uh, yeah, um, and I was in love with poems and poems. I just got so much from poems. I learned about history. I learned about science. I learned most of what I know in this world, I know from poems. Um, They carry information, uh, but they also just carry feeling. They carry a reminder that you're a human being. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think I toyed around with other things because you got parents and you got to lie to them. But I ultimately, I'm, I always knew. I mean, you know, I would say other things because you have to lie to your parents. But I just knew, uh, well, my parents, you probably don't have to lie to your parents, but I needed to lie to my parents to survive. Um, but I always knew I wanted to write. I never, I never thought I would do anything else. Sometimes, you know, I was taking acting classes before the pandemic. And so sometimes I think I want to do that too, but I know it's not my first voice. I know it's not originally who I am, you know. Um, I'm sort of an extroverted introvert, so it's not natural for me to uh, to perform or to come out of myself in certain ways. Um, but 
I want to learn more about how to do that as well. Where did that come from? Um, I think, you know how you watch a thing or see a thing and uh, if you really enjoy it, then you want to do it, right? It's like, you know, it's very hard. I mean, I don't know your experience in life, but for me, it's very hard to, to hear. Um, I don't know. It's very, I think it's hard for people, maybe not people, but I think, uh, you know, most human beings have a really hard time hearing uh, Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody without singing. Do you understand what I mean? Sure. And, that's so funny. I was just listening to that song last night. And, and were you singing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. That's and the so, whole thing. You know, and everybody can't sing and nobody can sing like Whitney Houston. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what <laughs> is it? I mean, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Whitney Houston gets to right. part Some of people that song. can sing, but nobody sings like Whitney Houston. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, anyway, so that thing that happens where we hear a song, but we want to sing, we're so turned on that we want to sing, I think is the same thing that happens in all things. I think we see a thing and we're so turned on. We're like, oh, can I do that too? You know, or your body just automatically mimics the beauty of a thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, and for me, uh, and even when you're younger, right? Like, depending on your age, if you see gymnastics, right? You know, now I see gymnastics, I'm like, that look good, but I know better. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but so, so I'm saying all that to say that when I see acting done really well over the years, um, it's just come to a point where I'm impressed by it to a point where I, I want to try it. I want to see what other people's words feel like coming out of my mouth. You know, other people's raw words, like people who have thought about things like, how does it feel to have that come out of my mouth? And is that similar to when I read someone else's poem aloud? Um, and I want to, um, it's just sort of something I want to see if I know how to do or see if I can do. Yeah, it could be one of, one of, one of your voices, we'll maybe see. not your first voice. We'll see. It's not original, though. I mean, it's, it's definitely not um, the first thing that comes to mind. The first thing that comes to mind for me is always writing. Yeah. And I've made a pretty good habit out of it, too. You know, writing. <laughs> yeah. See, see Whereas I have way. to remember to go, you know, when I was in class, I, would, it would, um, I think my class, maybe, let's say it was every Wednesday, and it would be like Sunday, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I got to memorize my lines but I don't really have to be reminded to write. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And now me being, there are, there are days that writing doesn't get done, or, or I should say days it doesn't get done well, many days that it doesn't get done well. But even when I'm not writing or not writing well, I'm thinking about, I wish I was writing. Those days in between where I'm not memorizing my lines, I really do not remember that I have not memorized my lines. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Right. Sure. Yeah. We started by talking about the late Pastor Richard Old Church and um, the way that being in the church helped make you the poet that you are. Uh And I'm wondering if you've been thinking lately, maybe since he passed um, again or differently about his language and how his language is present in your language. Um. I don't know that I've thought about his language or how it's present in my language. I mean, I think really all I've thought about is just how much he loved us. The kids in particular who were in that church, we felt like that man 
knew our names and loved us in an, in a very individual way. Mm. Um, but I don't know that I've thought about a particular sermon or or about his language. Um, I can see him now. You know, I can see him. He had a way of reacting whenever something was great, whenever we do anything or whenever a song came over well, or he just had a way of reacting. And I see that. It was the most encouraging thing that anybody could ever do for me. I did want to say that, um, oh, I know what it is. It was about reading poems and about how when you read a poem, that poem will change for you over time. So if you fall in love with a poem at the age of 15, you can stay in love with that poem by the time you're 35, but you will see it completely differently because you've lived and because you feel differently about the world uh, and because you're a different person than you were when you were 15. That, um, that feeling, uh, I think, is enhanced for me because I get to teach. Um, what's wonderful about having students is that I get to teach some of the same poems over and over again to the point that I've memorized them, right? Uh, you know, I want to show my students something about line or about metaphor, or about endings or about list making or whatever I'm trying to show them. And so, I'm, you know, I have particular poems that I can go to to show them those things. And every time I go to those poems, semester after semester, I see something new, you know? Um, I'm also interested in how some of those poems fall away, you know, poems that I thought I'd be teaching forever and I love so much, maybe I'm not as crazy about. And newer poems take their place, you know what I mean? Um, so those are the kinds of things that, um, that I'm grateful for. I'm really grateful for my students because they're always, my students are always showing me stuff in poems that I just have never seen, poems that I've known my whole life. And they're like, oh, but there's also this. And I'm like, oh my God, how did you not see that, Jericho? Um, so they're, they're really a gift. My students are a gift to me. Uh, and so I, uh, if there's any threshold, uh, I would call them, you know, and the ability to be able to teach. Um, I would call that the biggest threshold of my life um, because they are the ones who renew me. They're the ones who keep me excited about their excitement about poetry is what rejuvenates my excitement about poetry. Um, <laughs> The fact that they are interested in doing things that I don't know how to do or that I don't think can be done uh, in a poem, that rejuvenates me. The fact that they are of different um, aesthetic predilections than I am rejuvenates me. It leads me to read books that I otherwise would not read in order to have books to recommend to them. Um, so teaching, I think, has really made me more capacious as a as a poet and as a reader and uh and so I'm always grateful to to my students they're all so wonderful and I remember them you know um and I appreciate them uh for what they've meant in my life and I mean I don't know if they knew it but they were really helping me continue to live this life uh at times when I would have otherwise quit and sometimes when I can't be there for myself because it's my responsibility to be there for my students, I can do that. I will be there for my students even when I can't be there for myself. And through being there for my students, I end up being there for myself. So um, I think that's probably, that's the threshold. I mean, my students create a world where I can't give up on poetry. 
Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.